Well, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, finishing off a very short series last Sunday morning evening and now in this chapter. Let's hear the Word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate or sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only— also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I make known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me 
may be in them and I in them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're picking up uh, this passage uh, at verse 18 of the chapter where the Lord Jesus says, uh, as you send me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And we're going to pause for a moment here to, to consider what it means for Jesus to be sent into the world. Fred Sanders, a friend of mine, has written a book on the Holy Spirit, which will come out, uh, I think, later on this year. Uh, I've written a blurb for it so that you should buy the book when it comes. Uh, but in that book, he uh, gets us to consider carefully or to seek the, how carefully the Scripture speaks about God making himself near us or present to us in salvation. He does that because very often we are not careful with the way in which we describe it. Very often when preachers like me, uh, and I've done this in the past, I'm quite sure, and uh, Sunday school teachers, when we are talking about God amongst us, God coming to us, we use that language. We sometimes use the language of coming down, of course, we come down from heaven to earth. Uh, but very often the language we use, is, we use presupposes a kind of movement in God. God was somewhere, now he's somewhere else. He was in heaven, now he's on earth. He, he is distant from us, now he's near to us. Now all those words near and down are used in the Bible, but they're used in a human way to get us to think about uh, what is happening uh, at the cosmic level. Because there is no movement, either in time or in space, when it comes to God. In fact, uh, even talking in those terms contradicts what we're told about the majesty and the transcendence of God, that God is everywhere present. He is present to the most minute atom anywhere in the universe. He is totally present. He's 100% where that atom is, wherever it is in the universe, every one of those atoms. He is fully present everywhere in the universe. That's why we understand that he can be present to the lowly of heart without ceasing to be exalted on high. Then there are those uh, two ex supreme expressions of God coming to us or dwelling with us. One is the incarnation of the Son, and the other is the outpouring of the Spirit. So we talk about the presence of the Son of God. We talk about the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. And we talk about the Son and the Spirit being sent. This is what Jesus does in verse 18. You sent me. You sent me. And what we discover is the Father sends the Son, and then the ascended Son sends the Holy Spirit. The Father, however, is never sent by anyone. 
because he does not proceed from anyone. But we can say about the Father that he comes, that he is with us, that he makes his home with us even. Jesus uses that language in chapter 14 of John. But we never use the language of God the Father ever being sent. Why? Because he is the central principle of the Godhead. Everything proceeds from him. He doesn't proceed from anywhere else. This is an order, an order of nature, a principle of life within the Godhead. The Son, on the other hand, eternally proceeds from the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. In other words, when we talk about the, the, the Son coming from the Father, He's only doing what He has done eternally, but He's doing it towards us. The Holy Spirit, when He comes to us, is doing what He does eternally, coming from the Father and the Son, but He's coming towards us to take up His residence in our lives. So the sendings of the Spirit and the Son reflect the eternal processions of the Son and the Spirit. You may say that's really highfalutin language but you've got to get it right or else you speak wrongly of God. So when we say that the Son was sent or the Spirit was sent, they're not sent the way we are sent, but it's like the way we are sent. So we use the language nonetheless, but we've got to be careful how we use the language. That's why we can talk about the missions of God. The Son was sent and the Spirit was sent. Cyril of Alexandria, one of the great uh, early fathers of the church, the great uh, African uh, theologian, puts it like this. He nails it, actually. He says this, We maintain that the only begotten, who was God by nature, and in the form of and equal to God the Father, has become human of a woman, taking on himself all things that are proper to humanity except for sin, he ineffably united himself to our nature of his own will that he might restore our nature through himself to the beauty that it had in the beginning. He comes as the Son taking our nature to restore our nature. That's why we sometimes refer to Jesus as the second Adam, because Paul does, and uh, he's the man from heaven who's come to restore those of us from the earth to heaven. We've also used the language of Jesus being our great high priest. We can trace that language right back to Cyril of Alexandria. Jesus is our great high priest. And in this chapter, we've seen him as he sanctifies the offering, the sacrifice. He has come himself to be the offering as well as the priest. He offers himself. No other priest was good enough to offer the Son of God as a sacrifice on the altar of Calvary. He offers himself to be our sin bearer and our sin offering in order that he might bring us to God. So that's what he's done. We looked at that last time. And here he consecrates, sanctifies, the same word, by the way, 
Same word in the Greek. He consecrates or sanctifies these apostles to their role, which is unique in the church, uh, to be priests and prophets to God. The apostles are utterly unique in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why they have been, I think, the main focus of Jesus' attention in this upper room discourse that begins in chapter 13. He washes their feet. He tells them that what he's doing, they won't understand, but when the Spirit comes, they will understand what he's doing. He's doing what the high priest did to the priests in the temple. He would wash them before releasing them to do the work they were called to do. So he does that, first of all. He, he washes them. He consecrates them. In the language of this prayer, he consecrates them. Then a little later in John's gospel, they and they alone will be given a unique experience. Jesus will breathe on them the Spirit of God, not in the way that the Spirit is poured down in the day of Pentecost on all of the church, but unique to them because they are going to be the bearers of his word. They are going to continue his work. They're going to suffer like him, perform miracles like him. They're going to speak the very words of God like him, which is why, by the way, I have a pet peeve that I need to share with you, and it's the way in which some copies of the Bible have the words of Jesus in red ink. Burn them. (laughs) Every word in the Bible is the word of Jesus. Because the word of Jesus is the word of God. We mustn't distinguish. People who do that don't understand. Every time you hear God speaking in the Bible, you're hearing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're hearing Jesus. Anyway, back to the message. So, the apostles then are set apart by Jesus' words to this great work to which they are called. But then he turns his attention now away from the apostles, and he turns his attention to you. Jesus as God has you in his mind. At this moment, in his divine nature, absolutely every one of us in this room, absolutely every believer in the world, as far away as China and this side and uh, California and the other, <laughs> or whatever. He has every believer in the world today and throughout history on his mind. He knows their names, their details, their height, their weight, their career, their background, their genetic construction. He knows all of that stuff in his divine nature. They were given to him before the world was created. You were given to him from before the world was created. Are you important? Yes. How long have you been important? Since before there was a universe, you were important. Your name was written on his heart. He even ordained your name, which I have a bone to pick with him about. But anyway, uh, there, there we are. So he is praying then for all of the faithful And he prays that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they too may be one in us. 
in us. Now, this is very difficult for us to grasp. The other great uh, African theologian is St. Augustine. He puts it like this. Hence, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father in such a way as they are one. Why? Because they're one in substance. We confess that in the Creed this morning. We can indeed be one in them, but we can't be one with them because we are of a different nature and a different substance. Jesus could say, I and the Father are one, indicating that he, his nature and the Father's nature were the same. But we can also say that we are one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because they come to indwell us. We can share it in them, even though we're not of them. And we share it in them because God gives to us the life of God. The very, very life of God is given to us. As uh, Thomas Aquinas puts it, we are not in God by unity of essence, but by conformity of will and love. We will to serve Him, we will to love Him, and we love Him. We love God, we love one another, we're imitators of God as beloved children, we walk in love as Christ loved us. We imitate Him by imitating His goodness. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These things point us to the unity we have in God. And all this is so that the world might believe. Now, he's not here talking about the world the way that he's been talking about the world earlier on in John's gospel of society and culture all around us that is condemned by God and will be destroyed ultimately in judgment. No, here he's talking about the world of believers. When we pray for the world in this sense, we're not praying so much for people who are of the world in that negative sense. We are praying for the world of believers. Isn't it wonderful to come to church and to see representatives? I'm so excited about this, I'm talking too fast. Uh, representatives of the, of the world of peoples and nations gathered together as we are here in this room today, north, south, east, west, represented here because this is the world of believers for whom Christ died. And that's the world he has in view here, the world of believers world that's reconciled to God. That's the world that is to be one. And then he goes on to say this, the glory that you gave me, I have given them. The glory you have given me, I've given them. Now he's talking in the present tense here, the glory you gave me. He's actually talking about the resurrection glory, but since he is eternal. He talks about it in the presence, because what he has by knowledge and by promise, he will shortly have by reality. You know, one of the things the Bible says is that the Father is the one who raises and gives life 
The Bible says the Son is the one that raises and gives life. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the one who raises and gives life. Listen to this. One, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give you life to your mortal bodies. Or, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so too the Son gives life to those whom He wishes. So who is it that raises the dead? Who is it that gives life? Is it the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Answer, it's the Holy Trinity, the indivisible work of the Trinity, the inseparable work of the members of the Trinity. They act as one, though one particular may be the one in which it terminates, the action terminates. Nonetheless, the triune God is always at work in everything. The triune God raises the dead and gives them life. Now, this is where we understand then what this glory is that's going to be given to us, future tense. We, we put it in the future tense. Jesus has already given it to us, but it's yet to be realized in our lives. And this glory is the immortality which the faithful will receive at the resurrection, even the immortality of the body. In Philippians 3, he will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Or in the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. The Son as the Son together with the Father gives glory to Christ in His human nature. And together with the Father, the Son gives glory to the faithful. We, we are going to participate in that glory. In this look at verse 24. Verse 24, we read these words, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Cyril of Alexandria, again, after praying for his disciples, or rather for all who would come to him by faith, and after asking the Father for unity and love and sanctification, he immediately adds these words. In doing so, he shows that being with him and being counted worthy to see his glory belongs to no one but to those who have already been united to the Father through him. We are sons in the likeness of him who is truly the Son of God by nature. Now, he prays two things. One, that we will be with him. What does it mean to be with Christ? Well, the Bible says it's unspeakable joy. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. First Corinthians 2. Paul can say it's better to depart and to be with Christ. 
On the last day, the dead will rise, and we who are alive and are left will be caught up together in the clouds, that is, the clouds of glory with Him, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will forever be with the Lord. Jesus said, I will come again, and I will take you to Myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. For the believer, the hope is that we will be with Christ, with Him, in person, not remotely, not virtually, but in person, with Christ. And that we will see, see His glory. St. Augustine reminds us that he does not say believe, believe. He says that they may see, see. This is where we believe. On that day, we will see. This seeing is the reward of faith. It's not the action of faith. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Faith has to do with things hoped for. But what the Lord Jesus is asking for is for that day when we will see Him. One of the big issues we have with our faith sometimes, the troubling of our faith on occasions, is that we, have, we pray to God and we don't get any feedback. We don't hear Him talk back to us, as it were. We're not listening in the right places when that happens, by the way. But also we we struggle because we can't see Him. He's invisible to us. Which is why the hope that Jesus holds out before us is that on that great day, we we will lay eyes on Him. We will see Him. St. Thomas Aquinas said wisely that the glory that is referred to here, there are two glories actually in view here. First of all, there's the glory of Jesus' resurrected human nature, like uh, 1 John chapter 3, when He appears, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Or Philippians chapter 3, He will change our lowly body like, to be like His glorious body. So there's the glory of the resurrected human nature, and there's the glory of His divine nature. Jesus is Himself the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of His substance. And Thomas says, the saints in glory will see both these glories, the resurrected humanity of Christ and the divine nature of Christ. We will see further then we realize we will see with Job, in my flesh, I will see God. At the day transfiguration, the disciples, we're told, saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him. And Luke adds that Moses and Elijah were with Him in the glory. We will be with Him in the glory. They were seeing a foreshadowing of that day. We are destined for glory. 
And to see Jesus' glory is to see the glory of the Father. It is for us to see the essence of God. The pure in heart will see God. Paul says, now we see it through a mirror dimly, like opaque glass. But then face to face, face to face, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The holy city has no temple, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and they will see his face, seeing the essence of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now you say that that's not a great thing. John Calvin puts it like this, this beatific vision is the great prize, our eternal preoccupation. It is the pinnacle of perfection. It's the end towards which we were saved, Calvin says. Christ's humanity will no longer keep us back from a closer view of God. Calvin believed we would see the essence of God. And how is that possible for creatures? It is because we will be glorified the way Jesus is glorified. This is what leads the Eastern Church to use the language of deification. The Western Church is a bit more cautious because it's scared to use that language. But actually, the language of deification and the language of glorification are saying exactly the same thing. Peter talks like this. He talks of us becoming partakers of what? The divine nature. Jesus wants us to share in what? The glory of God. God doesn't give His glory to just anyone. What is eternal life? But the very, very life of God. That's an, that's an attribute of God. Now, we don't become gods, of course. But we partake in a creaturely way of these divine uh, attributes when we are glorified together with Him. You have loved me, and you will see me and be with me. Now, what is this call for? The tragedy, I think, of the evangelical movement since its beginning, really, at the the end of the 18th, early 19th century is that it turned its back on the fathers, the medievals, and the reformers, and sought to take the best, or I mean, the, the authority of Scripture was the thing for which evangelicalism really was known. That reached its pinnacle in this church, really, in the... The, the movement to assert its, its uh, inerrancy. In fact, that was picked up by the Roman Catholic Church and put in the Roman Catholic Catechism. That's a good thing. The inerrancy of Scripture was worth fighting for. One of the greatest fights of the 20th century to make that clear. But sadly, evangelicalism has from its beginning put its focus on the Christian life in terms of action and activism. 
That's one of the hallmarks. Divine inerrancy of Scripture gets a tick. The the penal substitutionary atonement, that gets a tick. The kind of thinking that that means you as an individual Christian can do without the church and that you can read the Bible just on your own without any checks and balances, because frankly, I can't study the Bible alone and preach to you without observing the checks and balances. And that the Christian life is all about action, programs, doing stuff. And we've lost the place for the contemplation of God of thinking about God, of taking these words of Jesus and meditating on them, praying over them, allowing that inner change to take place within us. May God, by His grace, enable this beatific vision of who God is to become the motor of our lives and the great object towards which we move. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father God, will you show us how wonderful it is to have this great prospect, faith becoming sight when we see you and in the likeness of Jesus, with your glory, in your glory, sharing your glory, to be able to see into the very essence of God. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.